This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello and welcome and thank you to everyone for joining us today from around the world. We understand from Maine to Madrid to Istanbul to Duluth, New Zealand, Poland, We're all in the house right now. Thank you all very much uh, for joining us. I'm Janine Jackson. I am the program director of FAIR, the Media Watch Group, and producer and host of FAIR's radio show, Counterspin. I'm very pleased to be part of this conversation today. Before I introduce the reason we're here, professor, author, and legal scholar, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, I'd like to thank the organizer and the sponsors of this teach-in, Haymarket Books and the African American Policy Forum. Now, it is my pleasure to bring in Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, whose birthday it is today. (laughs) Kim Crenshaw is professor of law at UCLA and Columbia Law School. Her work is foundational in two fields that have come to be known by terms that she coined, critical race theory and intersectionality. She is the co-founder with Luke Charles Harris and the executive director of the African-American Policy Forum and directs the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies at Columbia Law School. She is tireless and righteous, and I'm honored to work with her and to call her my friend. So welcome, Kim, and happy birthday. Thank you, Janine. It's really, this is fun, and I'm really happy we are getting a chance to do this together. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. Um, We recognize that the coronavirus pandemic, while it has drawn people together closer in some ways and highlighted some overlooked workers, it's not a great equalizer. It does not affect people without regard to class, gender, race, or ability. Every vector of difference is meaningful, as a matter of fact. And so it's not instrumentalizing the crisis. It's not inappropriate to call attention to the ways that it is not only worsening, but also simply illuminating existing problems. Recognizing societal interdependence is one thing. It's not the same as saying, now we're all in the same boat. You know, I know that I'm not alone when I hear people saying, we never knew grocery workers were so vital. And you know, <laughs> we never thought our country would come to this. And I think, who's the we? Who's the we exactly? Mm-hmm. But it takes conscious work to avoid this smothering reductionism. You know, we mm-hmm. need to go back to work. We all want to go back to work. That these ways of seeing that erase some people and their experience. So I wanted to ask you first just to talk about the utility of the intersectionality framework in the COVID context. What does it help us to see in terms of where we're at and ways forward? And and how do we positively, constructively understand that while the pandemic is a shared enemy, we aren't all facing it with the same tools or in the same way, or even in some sense, together? Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for that, Janine. Well, of course, some of why we decided to try to begin um, uh, the answer to that question, what does intersectionality have to do with it, was to create um, a webinar series in which we took up one or more aspects of each of those questions every week. Uh, and our uh, assumption was that there were many who were being exposed to the ideology of we're all in this together. So the main way that we need to talk about this and prepare to deal with it is through a colorblind, classblind, genderblind, every kind of blind way of addressing the problem. And, you know, I'll be concrete about it. About six weeks ago, uh, I wrote a piece about the the coming uh, uh, intersectional crises that the pandemic was going to obviously produce. And at the time, the conversation was still in the, well, this may be the one thing that brings everybody to the table to recognize the need for universal health care. This will be the one moment that we have been theorizing will happen that will cause people to give up their fantasies about whiteness, maleness, whatever, and they'll recognize that we're all just one race, the human race, and we need to pull all together. So there was this sense that um, this is the moment that shows that all quote unquote identity oriented politics that are not human identity politics uh, are yesterday's news and they don't do us any good. Um, and so I was pretty much clear that this was just going to be another moment where human crises would not create the moment of recognition of our common humanity. And that that crisis was actually going to reinforce the pre-existing structured and historical vulnerabilities that we've been trying to use intersectionality to talk about, you know, for a generation. Um, so uh, in that moment, a lot of people didn't want to hear it. Um, and so my little op-ed got nowhere. Then there was the, the moment of, oh, my God, there is a racial uh, crisis here. Oh, my goodness. Um, this is actually playing out in uh, devastating ways uh, in, uh, in, in its impact on, you know, uh, African-American, Latinx communities, Native uh, communities. It's playing out in uh, ways that trap what we have been calling the geographies of confinement. So who knew? Well, actually, a lot of people knew. Right? It's just the dominant ways of thinking about this. And by that, I'm framing it mostly in terms of you know, what the media, the mainstream commercial media was willing to hold up, what the pundits were willing to talk about, what we were seeing on television, they were not willing to talk about the pre-existing structures that completely predicted these outcomes. Um, so then we get to stage three and stage three is, okay, now we do have these uh, outcomes that suggest that we're not all in this together. Um, you know, COVID may be uh, an equal opportunity, uh, lethal force, but it doesn't impact us in an equal way. How now do we talk about these differences? And that's when we saw, I think, the consequences of over a decade of post-racial, non-racial, colorblind discourse, having to take account of racial realities 
that are different. So if you don't have a robust framework that is attending to structured institutional forms of uh, power, if you don't have a structural racism framework and you're looking at difference, you take power out of the equation. All you have is difference. And the difference is embodied in the people who are being differently uh, impacted. So that's why we get a Surgeon General who comes on and uh, uses uh, racialized, racially coded um, um, talk to basically say, you have control over this. You have to start acting differently. So the disease is actually projected into bodies, into communities, into culture. That's the consequence of not having an analysis that, number one, is attending to pre-existing inequalities, and number two, that understands that you can have a, a, a dynamic, which is COVID, which itself may be you know, obviously a uh, blind to social difference, but it intersects with pre-existing social differences that produce these outcomes. So, so I think we've been through in the last six weeks, you know, a three-part cycle. And all during that cycle, what we've been trying to talk about is how to bring an intersectional prism to what we're seeing now, um, how to bring an intersectional prism to what we're likely to see in the next phase of this, and then how to bring attention to the pre-existing uh, discursive vulnerabilities, not just the structural ones, but what have our investments been in the past that make it difficult for us to aggregate our experiences, our resources, and our wish for a different world to create a far mo more robust um, um, a, a set of policies, practices, and politics. And I think that's where we're at right now. We, we really have to think very hard about what we're seeing in Michigan, what we're seeing across the country, what we're seeing happening um, in, in the White House. What are the conditions that made that politically possible? And what do we need to do to unravel that equation that basically I think, you know, the right wing and, and Trump are relying on? They think they have a formula that's going to work. And it's up to us to unravel that and create an alternative formula to counteract what we see happening across the country today. Yeah, I was I was happy to see at least some pushback on that the Surgeon General's attempt to locate the problem inside Black people and and the culture. It showed at least some some progress in terms of our understanding of what's structural and 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 how what's okay to say about that. And you know you you read about some people being especially vulnerable. They're just described as especially vulnerable. Um, people with disabilities, poor people, the incarcerated. And that phrase suggests that these people are inherently vulnerable. You know, it, 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 it does the same thing in a way that the Surgeon General was doing. It locates the vulnerability as a quality of those people rather than people being forced into and kept in vulnerability by historical and ongoing societal choices enforced by power. And so then when you hear politicians and pundits saying, well, you know, vulnerable people are just going to die. You know, um, it's it's very sad. It's tragic, but it's natural with no recognition that the vulnerability itself is not natural. Mm -hmm. And and you have talked about the historical growing up of that. And you wrote recently for The New Republic, a piece called Blackness as Pre-Existing Condition. 
that explored some of the even deeper history, even further back history in terms of the construction, you know, of the situation that we're in today. These were choices that were made. And yet that history, much of it is is erased or forgotten. I, I wonder if you could talk about some of that. Yeah. And, you know, much of the history is erased and forgotten, partly because we're not a society that values uh, conveying history, particularly the parts of our history that are not to be celebrated. So um, it's it's not entirely surprising, but there's also parts of the history that I think are distorted even by those uh, in our own, you know, sort of neck of the woods, progressives who uh, celebrate, for example, the New Deal, uh, which compared to the uh, trillion dollar bailout that we have now, of course, um, is a uh, Uh, everything that this thing isn't. But at the same time, in celebrating the New Deal history um, and then celebrating uh, post-war federal policies that created uh, the suburban uh, communities that now become the birthright of uh, many, you know, uh, up by the bootstraps, we made it um, all of our own, uh, all on our own you know, sort of white uh, working and middle class sensibilities. Um, These moments of what I call earlier disaster relief, the New Deal being a disaster relief um, from, you know, the economic uh, 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 meltdowns then and then, you know, post-war policies being the disaster relief of having had, you know, a a war that potentially threatened uh, not only world peace, but, you know, American prosperity. These were all moments where the terms of the relief not only left Black people, um, uh, Latino people, uh, agricultural workers, domestic workers uh, out, but it also created a new baseline of expectation for whiteness so that um, it was an elevator ride up for those who were able to take advantage of it. It was a push down for those who were not able to take advantage of it. And now the contemporary consequences of that uh, radically disparate distribution becomes the baseline for politics and possibilities in the here and now. Um, so you you have a new deal that was um, uh, tailor-made to fit what white Southern uh, legislative uh, power brokers were willing to tolerate. So yes, we will uh, embrace the working man and his family. We will um, reverse some of the consequences uh, of this economic uh, meltdown. We'll even go against conventional notions of law and constitutionality to do so, but we will only do so on the terms that allow us to sustain and maintain white supremacy. Um, And that becomes uh, the new baseline for uh, labor rights, for um, uh, uh, what is considered to be a a fairer way uh, of uh, distributing uh, opportunity. And, you know, the, the, the consequence of that ends up being some part of what drives the civil rights movement. But because the historical contextualization of there was a moment and and people of color were left out of it, because that's not part of our history and our our, our recollection, 
the civil rights movement ends up being framed as a one-off, you know, identitarian uh, claim for, um, you know, sort of special, uh, special treatment. Um, uh, white voters never came back to the Democratic Party after that, um, in part because this is viewed as taking something away or giving something uh, preferential to these groups of, of people. So when we don't have a sense of how disaster relief efforts not only build on past inequalities, but it deeply entrenches them so that what goes forward is not just a continuation, but now a newly structured distribution of opportunity and, and privilege and burden and exclusion. When we don't have that, when we get to the next crises, the distribution of the impact of the crises, first of all, reflects that past, but then it also sets the stage for the same thing to happen again. So if we look at what's happening with this relief package, you know, the data are suggesting that, you know, businesses owned by uh, people of color, by women, um, are losing out dramatically in any effort to stay afloat with these resources. The loans aren't likely to make it to um, uh, people of color who are most marginalized. We could go on and on and on. This is not natural. This is the product of past public policy. And now we're doubling down in creating the same kind of decisions that extend this past and this present far into the future, unless we can figure out how to interrupt that right now. Well, you know, that was actually something that I had just been thinking about because it, this, this situation is clearly shot through with intersectional meaning, but it's in multiple locations. And mm -hmm. I think folks are able to maybe see Yes, black women are especially vulnerable, you know, people who are overrepresented in frontline work, who are susceptible to underlying health conditions, who face bias and racism and treatment, lack of access to health care. You know, um, we can think about Rana Zoe Mungan, the 30 year old teacher who passed away recently, unable to get tested for the virus. Mm -hmm. EMTs told her she was having a panic attack. Uh, but then we also have, which you just cited, data that's suggesting that as many as 90% of minority and women owners are going to be shut out of the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program. And why? It's because the banks that are participating in this forgivable loan program are only issuing loans to existing clients to speed up the approval process. Mm -hmm. And they're prioritizing larger loan applications in order to maximize fees and their own profits. So historical exclusion becomes current exclusion, becomes future exclusion. But mm -hmm. because you can't say the banks are excluding black and women business owners because they're black and women, you know, people won't see that as bias because it's been institutionalized, because it's been frozen. So if we have a discourse that says, not only if you don't have hate in your heart, then that means you're not racist, you know, which I think, again, folks I think are starting starting to get. But also we have a discourse that says that we had racism in this country and we we cleansed our our laws and our institutions of it. So now it will only be racist individuals within institutions that will be responsible for any racist outcomes. Yes. Uh, and I think that that paycheck Protection program is an excellent example because, hey, if you didn't own a business, if you didn't have this 
relationship with a bank in the past, well, you're not going to have it now. Mm-hmm. And well, why didn't you have it in the past? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I think, um, you know, that's that is a that is spot on. But it's a place where it's the discursive problem. That's the problem. It's it the is. And I, I would I would add to that because those are excellent examples of what structured inequality looks like. It's also um, an important point of departure to think a minute about why there's such a disconnect between the actual material dimensions of race and gendered inequalities and the available frameworks and discourses that we have to capture, to see it, um, to politicize it and to intervene. So one one of the things that you know, sort of a go-to point that I make with respect to the importance of um, an intersectional prism is that if you if you really don't have the language to to see a problem, you can't really fix it. And um, the I guess the the primary example of that is that the language that we currently have that's mainstream um, is an understanding of of uh, inequality as being unjust only if it's produced by some decision maker whose absolute intent reason for doing the thing they're doing is because of um, uh, bigotry, uh, hatred, uh, or at minimum, complete and utter disdain for a particular group. Um, where does that idea come from? Part of that idea comes from um, sort of the history of how certain disciplines have conceptualized uh, what uh, discrimination uh, is, what it what it is constituted by. Uh, within the American Academy, the idea that you know discrimination and illegitimate power should be thought about as structural as opposed to. Uh, a, a, a feature of, of psychology uh, was uh, fought about and lost in the 50s, right? There were earlier ways of thinking about inequality as a societal problem that looked at its sociology and its structure as opposed to its psychology um, and, and its individual you know, sort of personality-driven uh, uh, contours. But that got lost. And part of the consequence of that loss is that when law finally started to pay attention to discrimination, it had readily available to it after a very short period of debate, a very narrow conception of what constitutes illegitimate inequality. And that basically uh, became the moment when the law adopted that in, in a case called Washington versus Davis. The only thing that really counts as illegitimate inequality as far as the constitution is concerned is when an actor decides to go after people simply because of who they are. Well, that's a very small subset of all the ways that illegitimate power plays out across race, uh, gender, and and other um, uh, groups. But making that move means that constitutional law uh, became increasingly less useful to uh, dismantle white supremacy, to dismantle the illegitimate expectations um, that uh, many white voters had in the status quo staying exactly the way it was. And then that gets doubled down by the fact that 
um, the right figured out pretty early that a key place where they could draw the line in the sand and protect their interests was the courts. So now the courts are completely on board. The consequences of these uh, decisions we're going to see in the future when um, lawsuits start coming up, not only with respect to the, the facts that you just suggested, like groups that are completely shut out of the uh, the remedies to uh, the economic downturn, but there are going to be lawsuits about um, opening up these uh, economies, knowing that people are going to die. There are going to be lawsuits about, you know, um, not being able to work because of suspicion that you might uh, be infected. There are going to be all sorts of lawsuits, and largely, many of these lawsuits are going to go into courts with judges that have been appointed by the Federalist Society during a time where the right was clear about the need to take over the courts and, you know, progressives and especially the left, not so much. So this is another condition of possibility that we have to talk about. We've been absent to the extent that we have now seen this open season on the courts and we're going to pay for it in, in a big way. Uh, we're already paying for it and we're going to pay for it more. So it's again, another moment where um, a, I think it's important to be able to fully understand the different dimensions of empowerment, not to uh, assume that um, the law doesn't have anything to contribute to it because it's just a product of the bourgeois you know, um, rationalization for societal distribution. Laws have always been an important arena. We've lost more times than we've won, but we've got to have an understanding of how important it is to the very capacity to fight what we are going to be facing in the future. Well, it, it was, of course, within the legal context that you 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 felt the need to to get the tool of intersectionality. You know, when you say if you can't see a problem, if you can't name it, you can't address it. You can't fix it. it amazingly, that was 30 years ago. You know, I, I, I'm sure people might be surprised to know that 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 this framework of intersectionality was not invented, you know, two years ago. But suddenly, intersectionality is is a point of contestation. There are, are resources, there are virtual cottage industries devoted to debunking it. You know, now as you explain it, and as it would seem to be understood, it involves simply acknowledging that people are born situated. You know, that they that they exist in with multiple vectors of identity, and that's simply the reality. And that therefore colorblind or genderblind or cookie cutter modes of approach are neither appropriate nor mm -hmm. necessary for solidarity. But I wonder why is intersectionality such a target? Uh, you know, <laughs> big question. Yeah, um, that that's a that's a long one right there. Um, so uh, it's it is fascinating to me that uh, intersectionality kind of you know as as an articulation of um, critical race theory 
critical legal studies and black feminism. And I, I make a point to um, talk about how uh, intersectionality is a way of articulating a black feminist sensibility in relationship to uh, critical legal studies, understanding um, that law is not simply regulatory, it is constitutive, um, uh, critical race theories, understanding that part of what law helps to constitute is race itself, uh, critical feminism that understands that gender is largely constituted through um, uh, uh, so social uh, and legal um, uh, frameworks. And all of these come together in explaining uh, how the law facilitates the the subordination of, of, of people, women of color in particular, and denies them the capacity to um, raise the claims around their subordination in courts of law. Um, so so that, that was basically the, the observation. And in part, the point was to use intersectionality as a word picture to con- to um, dialogue with judges that didn't seem to get just the basics. Like, you know, an employer can uh, hire white women and hire black men and still discriminate uh, against black women because what happens to white women is not the sum total of gender discrimination and what happens to black men is not the subtotal of anti-black racism. So um, they didn't seem to understand that. And intersectionality is just basically a metaphor to see more clearly the various uh, dynamics that anti-discrimination law was supposed to address. So it was sort of a remedial, you know, prism, uh, a way of seeing these issues. Well, um, uh, 30 years later, uh, intersectionality has now been framed as all sorts of things, but the most interesting part of, of it to me is the way that it's been picked up as uh uh, sort of a battering ram, you know, by by the right uh, to accuse progressives of identity politics. And um, what I find fascinating about that is that the main claim uh, made by what I call the anti-intersectional intersectionalists is a grievance claim that itself is a product of identity politics. So, um, you know, a Lindsey Graham, for example, in, in that moment uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings that some of us still uh, have post-traumatic stress around, um, there's a moment where he gave voice to this anti-intersectional intersectionality when he says, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a straight white man and and I know that I'm supposed to shut up, you know, but I'm not going to show up, shut up. And he goes on, you know, with this, um, you know, uh, grievance. We are, you know, being oppressed by, you know, all of these various uh, groups that all come together under the intersectional frame. It's clear from that moment that the complaint against intersectionality is not that it's about the intersections of identity. It's not about, it's, and it's clearly not about, um, you know, uh, structured inequalities. It's just about the people that they see riding in this vehicle and the politics that come with those people um, and the histories that come with those politics. That That's what much of the critique of intersectionality is all about. 
Um, I would say that the difficulty that I'm seeing now is that there are really far more resources that I think are being placed into trying to dismantle it um, than there are in in, um, trying to institutionalize it, trying to uh, frame uh, politics through its prisms. Uh, I think a lot of people just see it as an idea that will rise or fall on its own, and they fail to recognize that there have been a lot of great ideas like you know, uh, social welfare (laughs) that have come and gone because of concerted efforts to attack the idea as a way of attacking the people who are seen as being um, advanced by, whose histories are being made visible through that idea. So I I would say that an important moment that we're facing now, uh, number one, is to resist the idea that intersectionality is a luxury, uh, that we can only afford to have uh, in times of relative, you know, uh, clarity and prosperity, um, or at least in times of uh, a non uh, pandemic. Uh, and so now we have to get down to the real issues. Uh, instead, it's important to see intersectionality as a prism for helping us see and predict and interact with the pre-existing structures that intersectionality um, can help us see and that COVID has laid bare, which is you know part of the topic that we're dealing with in our uh, webinar series. It's fascinating to me that 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 um, the sort of grievance response in a way to the idea of intersectionality has been there from the beginning. I'm always struck when you tell the story of Emma DeGraff and Reed and just short version of black woman who was denied a job and was told, well, you can't say they're gender biased because they hire white women and you can't say they're racially biased because they hire black men. And when she tried to bring the case The judge didn't just say, no, you can't bring Mm -hmm. the case. The judge said it would be unfair to bring the case because she would be getting two swings at the bat. And and other folks don't get that. You know, so it wasn't just we can't help you. It was, you know. And how dare you ask us to. How dare you ask us to. And I, I also see an analog between the way that transit workers and grocery workers and farm workers are now being deemed at once essential and expendable Expendable. to the way that acknowledging, simply acknowledging the lived intersectionality of our lives is, as you've just said, seen as a nice idea if times are good, but ripe for jettison if times are hard. It's as if it's an indulgence or a tack on to the real cause of justice. And that's on the left as 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 well it as is. the it right, is. you know. And I, I keep thinking, and many of us have been in these situations, you know, for this meeting, you're black, you know, check your queerness at the door, you know, mm-hmm. like this group's about women. So shush, shush about your disability. We're not doing that. And I think of every instance of that is like poking a hole in a bucket and then saying, how come we can't bow out our democracy with this bucket? <laughs> you know, um, it, 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 it doesn't work. But the idea of presenting it as a, um, as a frippery, as a nicety, as something we'll do when we get around to it, that's just the same as wait your turn. I mean, it's, I, I, to mm-hmm. me, it's, it's no different. And yeah. it's, it's, it's not branch, it's root. Yeah. You know? And, and it's, it is surprising uh, on one hand that one hears echoes of some of the same uh, 
inpatient um, uh, uh, distancing from uh, intersectional sensibilities uh, within our quarters as one hears on the right. Uh, and it does raise a question about, so what is the logic? What is the theory? What, in what ways um, can uh, the left actually say, oh, we're post-intersectional now? And and I've seen that I've I've seen it written like this is the post intersectional moment. What the heck does that mean? Um, when when we can look across at this moment uh, and see, as you said, the you know uh, essential yet expendable you know worker is pretty much the you know um, reflects the same. Uh, a con convergence of vulnerable identities now that it, as it did, you know, decades ago. Um, what does it mean to say we're post-intersectional uh, when uh, we can look at, we've called them geographies of confinement and see that the um, the risk of COVID uh, is uh, uh, dramatically increased uh, for those uh, populations who live at the intersections of lots of things. Um, let, let's look at you know, uh, how markets situate some workers, uh, both uh, uh, in terms of our own national market, but globally uh, as people who are essential but actually have no real home. Uh, uh, Alioksa Tudor talked about this in our uh, uh, webinar uh, last week. Um, we look at um, the intersections and, and uh, confinement within a community. So if we look at uh, food deserts, if we look at places where um, one has to uh, drive for 100 miles uh, to get to a hospital, as we learned from uh, Dallas Gotooth in, in um, uh, Indian country. Uh, th that's intersections of uh, settler colonialism, of, of class, of, of just political marginality. I mean, we could, we could continue to name all of these places where the morbidity tracks onto uh, being confined uh, both physically but also politically uh, by the forces of white supremacy, by the for forces of patriarchy, and so on. I don't know how you look at that stuff and say we're post-intersectional. I literally do not know what people are talking about when they say that. But it also tells me that there's not much of an investment of those who say that to go beyond the superficial framings of intersectionality that actually emerge from the right. So when I hear people in my camp, and by that I mean within progressives, articulating the talking points of the right, I see this as an intersectional failure. This is a failure to actually be in conversation around the actual product of engaging in the real terms upon which people are experiencing subordination and power. And I'm not about uh, not talking about class, but I'm not about talking only about class. Exactly, which is a woefully misunderstood point. Um, it, it, you talk about geographies of confinement, and that actually reminds me of tomorrow's uh, webinar. Tomorrow's under the blacklight live stream. Tomorrow's under the blacklight is around the idea of mobilizing whiteness to reopen America. And that discourse has a lot to do with we should be free. We should be free to move about. We should be free to do 
whatever, you know, go wherever we want. It's, it's, it's couched and framed in terms of freedom and specifically freedom of mobility. And yet, you know, there are obvious other places that we can look to in which, you know, who gets that freedom? You know, um, mm-hmm. it's a core value, apparently, but it's only a core value that applies to some, you know. Yeah. So I, yeah. I wonder if you what sense are you making of how COVID in particular is activating that kind of set of grievances on the white right and particularly around this notion of freedom to move about? Yeah, yeah. You know, I um, we were we were doing um a webinar a couple of weeks ago uh, in, uh, in when we were introducing the, I, the idea of uh, disaster white supremacy, uh, building off of the great Naomi Klein's work about um, disaster capitalism and, you know, directly interrogating the ways that disasters uh, present opportunities uh, for uh, white supremacist projects that um, may have not been fully expressed or articulated or uh, may have uh, had to uh, be produced in ways in which the supremacist dimensions uh, were suppressed or hidden uh, behind, you know, frameworks of, um, you know, uh, uh, the the losses of middle America or rural America, um, where whiteness is not uh, expressly part of it. Uh, But in the a disaster moment, um, those those shackles come off, and uh, the the full uh, one gets the full Monty, as it were. Well, um, uh, our sense was that that is a framework that can help us think about what we saw in Michigan. Uh, Michigan, a union state, I, I call it double union. Union, uh, uh, in terms of, you know, they weren't on the Confederate side of the war, and union, and this is where, you know, working class, uh, uh, read white working class, you know, sensibilities are, are thought to, to prevent. Veil. Yet um, we're looking at. I, I when I saw those pictures, I couldn't think of anything other than, you know, historical moments in in which Reconstruction legislatures were, you know, taken over, in which uh, elected officials were, um, you know, burned out of uh, the state houses and and sometimes killed in 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 the process. We have a history in this country, not only of of a coup but of racist coups uh, in in which armed people uh, threaten and threaten and threaten. Um, And if the threats don't work, sometimes they actually go from Cold War politics to hot war politics. This is not um, this is not something that our country has not known. And I think if anything, as we look around and are consistently shocked uh, every time we think we haven't seen the bottom yet and another bottom happens, one bottom that we cannot afford to ignore is the bottom of racist uh, right wing violence. it, it's happening. Um, and uh, our failure to actually take into account of the possibility uh, that that's what we're seeing is is clearly, you know, a weakness on our part. So we we want to uh, talk about how emergencies, how moments of anxiety, uh, moments of economic and, and political instability 
are not necessarily moments where we all come together. Historically in the United States, there have been moments where we fall apart. After all, we had a civil war. Um, and we've had many smaller versions of these wars since then. So I think COVID is, again, a, a, an opportunistic disease uh, that facilitates the um, uh, converging of many right-wing uh, flavors uh, of politics. They are able to uh, elevate a whiteness as its ideological expression, um, elevating whiteness as it has been expressed ac uh, across you know, the centuries here, um, and, and do so in a way that normalizes stuff that you know, uh, Trump began to normalize by saying, oh, they're nice people, you know, on both sides to, oh, those are nice people taking uh, taking guns to the Capitol. The governor should sit down with them. This normalization is an incredible danger. And we've got to stop seeing it as just fringe politics. We've got to see it as uh, potentially the politics of the future. Again, unless we develop the discourse to be able to talk about whiteness as an ideology, to disabuse uh, people who might be sympathetic to our politics of using it as a baseline for talking about grievance and for being able to um, think about a future in, in which whiteness isn't at the center of legitimate grievance, but it is seen as one of the ideological frameworks that have de destroyed up until this moment the possibility of greater uh, solidarity across race, class, um, and, and other markers of, of social marginality. Yes, I, I've heard it said of uh, these protesters that they didn't get the apocalypse they wanted. They, they were hoping for chaos where they would be de facto in charge because they have guns and a bunker full of canned beans. You know, oh, instead oh. we have a crisis where the obvious answer is shared responsibility and an understanding that Margaret Thatcher, notwithstanding, there is such a thing as society. Yes. Um, yes. So the response has to be not simply to make fun of them or to present them as outliers, mm -hmm. but fully to absorb, you know, the, the vision that they have and to recognize that they aren't the only ones that have it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and I think I think this, too, is is where, you know, uh, male supremacy has to come in. Um, it's, it's ability to underwrite authoritarian, uh, leadership styles, um, and, and, you know, the celebration of the rugged, uh, individualism that, that is underwriting much of this has to come in. Uh, I think what has to come in is the, the capacity to read these moments for the, the symbolism that they represent. When Vice President Pence went to the Mayo Clinic, for example, um, uh, sans any uh, uh, PPE. Um, that, in my mind, wasn't simply um, an accident. It, it wasn't simply um, overlooking protocol. Um, it was, in my mind, uh, standing up to 
the, the medical establishment. I mean, Mayo is at the top of the food chain when it comes to, um, uh, you know, health. They're, they're, they're all the Mayo people are, you know, in their PPE with Pence standing amongst them, you know, with the sort of, I don't have to uh, adjust my behavior to this sort of nanny statism. Um, authority doesn't look like that. I'm not going to perform that. And I'm not worried about the consequences to me. And consequently, I'm not worried about the consequences to anyone else. There, There is in that moment a, a performance of a sort of... Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not going to allow my my uh, uh, presentation uh, of 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 authority to be undermined by some signal of weakness, and and a mask is a signal of weakness. Um, uh, Joe Lowndes is going to be on tomorrow. Uh, uh, mentioned about going into the store and being one of the only men with a mask on, and and what that negotiation between him and and the other men you know, sort of look like. And we can expect more of this, you know, to 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 unfold as the crisis goes into another month, into another year. So our, our failure to actually have a robust critique um, of male supremacy within the left, I think is also another intersectional failure one that unless we can wrap our heads around it, um, may be an open door to the solidarity that we think we need to create to defeat this next administration, um, might not be as solid as we think. I think, uh, I think this movement and I think Trump has made inroads, uh, in ways that, that we, um, you know, haven't fully accounted for, you know, the proud boys, uh, it's not an all white male formation. Uh, uh, and there are many other moments like this that shows that an uninterrogated uh, patriarchy creates baselines that allow for right-wing politics to actually capture those who should otherwise be allied uh, with progressive politics. Well, I will just follow that up because we did have a question from CJ that was specifically, I'm, I'm sorry, from Nikki, Nikki Arete, that was specifically asking how we might use intersectionality and critical race theory to build coalitions among groups to, to fight what we're going to call disaster white supremacy. You know, it, 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 it's not intersectionality is not a splintering, you know, um, to recognize difference it's, it still allows for and encourages the possibility of connection and of shared vision and understanding. And so Nikki had this question about how do we how do we use this to to form coalitions or to strengthen coalitions of all of those people who are on the wrong side of this mm -hmm. disaster white supremacy? Yeah. Well, you know that that clearly is the question that that I think is the right question, and, and it's something that I think many of us are thinking about. Part of the logic of of under the black light series is to 
perform coalition as we talk about what is happening. So um, we try, you know, week to week to bring people who are viewing um, this crisis through a lens that needs to be shared um, across our different constituencies and issue areas. Um, we try to start with like, what is, you know, the snapshot of the world from which um, you are encountering this moment? What, what are you lifting up? And so in that process, you know, we hear about, you know, uh, women agricultural workers who, you know, talk to us about, um, you know, being undocumented, not being able to practice social distancing, uh, not even having running water, you know, where they work so they could practice, you know, um, you know, uh, prophylactic measures, having to leave kids at home, um, having to, uh, share, uh, you know, childcare responsibilities while, you know, losing uh, money. They're talking at the same time that we're talking about nurses who don't have the PPE and nurses who are, you know, um, uh, obviously disproportionately women, um, nurses who, who many are uh, also women of color and frontline healthcare workers and home health aides. Um, so part of what we're trying to do in this moment is uh, bring these conversations together, not to substitute what people are talking about, but to create a multilingual, uh, multiple registered uh, set of conversations so we can see where uh, some of our issues overlap, um, where we can you know, sort of be like a sister's lending circle, lending rhetorical capital from one issue to another. So the, the commonalities and the overlaps are far more clear. I think the, the most perhaps uh, kind of unusual aspect of that was when we did um, uh, geographies of confinement and talked about uh, uh, the clusters of death that are happening in prisons and, and in other uh, um, uh, ICE facilities and what's happening in, in nursing homes. The tendency is to see what's happening in nursing homes and, and what's happening in prisons as sort of mutually exclusive. The populations is mutually exclusive. Uh, the justifications for what is happening to them as mutually exclusive. But if you actually start looking uh, more closely, you see in both of these populations, there are, are people who have largely been written off uh, either because of some projection of choice. They, they did things that put them in that situation or inevitability. They are just older people and older people um, are subject um, to, uh, to COVID. And what's less seen is that these are, um, uh, these, these death facilities are the product of choices. Um, they're product, they're product of choices of using the carceral state, um, as a, a mechanism of social ordering, um, and, and disciplinary social ordering on top of that, uh, choices, uh, about now that that has been an investment, not to uh, practice humanitarian release and 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 let people go. Um, their choices about warehousing older people um, and doing so with a profit motivation that ensures that you know ninety percent of people in nursing homes are going to have some experience uh, of neglect. Uh, and that's a cross class that we, we haven't even talked about, um, you know, uh, uh, nursing homes uh, and, and long care facilities. And then finally, there are those 
a commonality uh, of interest between those who have to work in those facilities and those who have to live in them. So partly because of the profit motivation, um, uh, workers who work in these facilities uh, often cannot sustain their lives on those wages, which means that they move from one facility to another. They have uh, multiple responsibilities. It makes uh, them vulnerable. It makes the people that they are caring for vulnerable. It makes their you know, families vulnerable. So all of these are moments where when we start talking about confinement, then we, you know, talk more broadly about what's happening in the home, what's happening in native country, what's happening in form, uh, uh, formerly and uh, formally uh, segregated communities. We are able to see where intersectional commonalities exist and hopefully um, come up with ways of expecting something different in the aftermath. We don't want to go back to normal. Normal was messed up. Um, this needs to be a black hole that takes us to another universe, another set of possibilities. And having these cross currents in our politics is hopefully one way in which that can be more likely. Well, if I could bring in um, a bit of an international context, we do have a question from a tape here. And I know that your work is international, that intersectionality has been taken up and used in many contexts around the world. We are, of course, tonight we're, we're looking mainly at the United States, but the thing is, the things that we're talking about are things that not only exist within other societies, but it exists among other societies. And, and Tate Pierre was asking about sort of relationships between the global North and South. And, and you know, that's a kind of a writ larger uh, set of problems. But I wonder if you could just speak to, in some ways, the way that intersectionality has been taken up, has been used, and is useful in looking also in an international way. Okay. Yeah. Well, yes, you know, intersectionality has... has actually in some ways been taken up more robustly outside the U.S. than in the U.S. Um, uh, I, and, and I, you know, more or less discovered the utility and the rearticulation of intersectionality um, through the world conference processes. We saw, you know, countless um, uh, uses of intersectionality during the world conference on racism to bring uh, gender and, and other forms of inequality into the conversation about race, racism, and, and xenophobia. Um, we saw uh, efforts to uh, talk, for example, about uh, anti-caste violence or anti-Roma uh, violence in, in, in Europe um, uh, as an intersectional set of vulnerabilities. It's not as though um, the consequences of these forms of violence are not mediated uh, by gender or not mediated by uh, um, caste. So we were really um, uh, in group of activists in that world conference stage in which the generative dimension of intersectionality was in many cases uh, amplified by the way people picked it up in, in struggle, frankly, with their own governments um, who insisted on separating out these issues and making it clear um, that they were not the great um, uh, other in conversations about racism, uh, the United States was, you know, Germany was, South Africa was. Well, intersectionality was something that many um, of our colleagues were using to say, no, there are issues here too. And this is a prism to help us uh, look at it. I would say um, 
um, more uh, more broadly, um, intersectionality was useful in um, disrupting one uh, aspect of I I think that. Um, you know, just to call it the assumption that the North-South um, developing, developed um, sort of framework, and, and to some even within Europe, the East-West framework, um, is itself a rigid uh, hierarchy in which everyone in the North and everyone in the South are uh, mutually ex- um, situated in relations of power. And um, there are ways in which that, of course, framework m- maps on to histories of uh, uh, coloniality, it, it maps on to um, the haves and haves not, but it also can erase um, the have-nots within the have places and the haves within the have-nots places. And we saw that playing out and we see that playing out in global politics. So um, I've seen and, and, and been lifted by efforts to um, use intersectionality to say that there are uh, dynamics, mechanisms, uh, thoroughfares of disempowerment that run through uh, North and the South, not just uh, bifurcate them. And they have to be a part of our discourse as well. And lastly, um, uh, both uh, uh, Kai Andrews and, and uh, Aliocha Tudor were on our uh, podcast and, and really brought home, um, uh, particularly Aliosha, the, the notion that um, there are, uh, um, we need an understanding of uh, post-nationalist uh, uh, internationalism, one that isn't rooted in the nation state, one that recognizes that some of the most vulnerable people are people who who are stateless because they are workers, they are treated as disposable because uh, they are not uh, nationals. And, and, you know, the example on the table uh, was, you know, in this moment of of Brexit, uh, plain loads of uh, migrant workers are being flown into the UK uh, to actually, you know, perform the work that others are not doing, but at the same time, they still have no home there. And that's a new... Um, uh, kind of, of way of thinking about confinement, being confined to that island of being essential and expendable, being in a place but not of a place. Um, these are some of the international um, visions that we see when we broaden intersectionality to look at mechanisms uh, within the global capital marketplace. Thank you. Uh, do you see problems um, in terms of a misunderstanding of intersectionality that means that it always is centered on race and the other in other words that it's um, there's no other way to you know I, I mean I happen to know that a lot of that there's been important work done around female Muslims in France for mm-hmm. example but mm-hmm. the idea that you know, it, it's really just a racial project uh, and it's really just about black people. And, um, you know, we've got some questions that seem to sort of be with reference to that. I just yeah. wonder, can you can you engage that? Uh, yeah. What it's worth? Well, yeah, that that's that's a fascinating, um, you know, and, and, and complicated conversation, because on one hand, you know, obviously, you know, intersectionality uh, interrogates uh, structures of subordination um, that uh, enhance 
uh, uh, social disempowerment and, and power when they come together and exacerbate uh, marginality. Um, so there's there's no there's no essential um, idea that only uh, race uh, uh, is required or that a race only you know point of departure is is part of that. So you know I I, I think you know obviously we're going to see more uh, intersectional uh, dimensions of of marginality through COVID and um, the aftermath of it. So. Yes, uh, it it would be, um, I think, uh, a, a limited and mistaken view to think that race has to always be part of it, and it's just about race. Having said that, I think many times the debate about whether race has to be part of intersectionality happens in moments when race is part of it, and people don't want to talk about it. Um, they want to say, we don't have that problem here. Um, they want to say, our academics don't talk about that problem without recognizing that academics actually reflect um, who's in the a- academy. And some places, I'm saying some places, you know, um, and, and those places know where they are, um, have not had a, a, a concerted effort to interrogate the limited terms by which people become, you know, part of the quote unquote, you know, writing and thinking class. So to point to we don't have that as we don't have that problem is actually proving too much. Um, so uh, I, I'm always really careful about um, affirming the idea that, oh, yeah, you can have intersectionality without race, because I know that many times it's an effort to um, mobilize the intersectional framework to interrogate the terms of disempowerment that say, you know, uh, white women um, or um, uh, a queer um, uh, people of a dominant, you know, race or, you know, working class men have, um, when in fact there are racial dynamics that are being under articulated. So not every time and everywhere, but many times its absence is itself a problem that needs to be interrogated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, As I once said, uh, intersectionality isn't like I'm tall and redheaded. (laughs) Not about being two things at once. it's, It's use as a tool has to do with the erasure that happens at those intersections and the right. people who are erased and the experience that's erased. The, the under the black light intersectional failures that COVID lays bare, that live stream series has been informed, infuriating and inspiring. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to say if there are other things and you've been including them, but if there are other things from the six preceding conversations that you wanna lift up because they've been ignored or misunderstood in the broader discourse or that you just think, you know, you'd like other people. The the conversations, folks should know, these live streams feature a lot of ideas coming at you uh, and and there's a lot to take away and and sit with. And and some of it is stuff that you won't have heard anywhere else and that you need folks to take out from this conversation and move forward with, take take forward. And I, I just wanted to give you a chance if there were other aspects or angles um, to that to that series that you wanted to lift up, and also you you started to address it. But how do you 
how do you decide what needs saying? How do you mm. how do you figure out you know what what to focus on? Yeah. Well, you know, we we initially started it thinking, um, you know, we'll go we'll do it for for as long as there's things that need to be said, and we're not seeing it uh, in the mainstream coverage. And it turns out that there's no uh, lack of topics and discussions uh, that need to be had. And if anything, it's a challenge to um, decide something, you know, five days or a week before, and you know continue to be inside the current, you know, cycle. Um, but most of, most of, I think what ha- has come to fore has really, um, gravitated towards what is it that this, this current framing is missing that progressives need to really be able to, um, understand the broader, uh, historical, uh, context for. Um, so I think plenty of people, you know, had an understanding, for example, that, that Wisconsin, uh, was, uh, an effort that could be described as disaster white supremacy. Let's use, uh, COVID, uh, as a way of further disenfranchising, uh, uh, African Americans in particular in Milwaukee. Let's use it as a way of further stacking the courts. Uh, let's use it as a preview of what might happen in November. Uh, and you know, that, effort was all the more uh, shocking because even uh, the Supreme Court got involved uh, in saying that this horrific uh, election was perfectly acceptable and consistent with our democratic values, whatever they may be. So we wanted to talk about that and give a a broader historical uh, understanding about, A, um, the disenfranchising moments historically in which uh, Black people had to choose between living and voting. And here we were uh, in 2020, effectively making those same kind of choices. Uh, So Barbara Arnwine, uh, who is uh, at the cutting edge, she was one of the folks who first rang the alarm about uh, vote suppression, uh, looking at these bills that ALEC, it's a a legislative right-wing organization, was pushing through all of the states um, that were battleground states that had the impact of trying to push communities of color, largely democratic voters, uh, out of the, uh, out of the voting booth. She, she rang the alarm years ago at a moment where a lot of people, including Democrats, didn't really want to talk about that because, you know, that was sort of from a different era that that's, that's like hardcore racist stuff. We don't really want to take that up until it became clear that um, democratic prospects were really in trouble if they did not take that up. So she talked, uh, about that. Uh, uh, Ibram uh, Kendi talked about um, uh, the disasters that happened uh, that gave us Herbert Hoover. Um, these were This was a, a, a disaster uh, during the Mississippi floods in which African-Americans were, were tremendously, uh, tragically impacted by this. There were all sorts of racial contours and outcomes, but the media didn't talk about that. They refused to talk about it. Herbert Hoover ends up being seen as a great administrator and 
his disastrous presidency is the result. Um, David Blight um, also, you know, talking about uh, disenfranchisement at the end of, of Reconstruction. So the idea has been to say, you know, nothing is new in American history. To really read between the lines here, um, here are some chapters uh, of the past uh, that help us see what is happening now and hopefully help us prepare um, not to repeat these moments again. Um, and then and then you, Janine, uh, came on and you know talked about the role of the mainstream media in priming us to accept, uh, you know, um, damned if you do, damned if you don't politics. It's your life or your livelihood. Uh, you know, so uh, if this is the narrow parameter in which we are uh, reading this moment, then it artificially limits the political possibilities that this moment might otherwise present. Uh, so you and, and Laura Flanders uh, uh, talked about the need to um, double back and realize that the loss of local media, the loss of independent uh, media, uh, the potential loss of independent publishers, all of this impacts the well-being of all of us. And so it was a moment where people can say, you don't support your local you know, media just you know, as a vanity. You, you support it because they support the ability of, uh, of us to understand how our lives are at stake. Um, and lastly, I would say, uh, we wanted to draw attention, and, and in tomorrow's we will, to the consequences of the last decade's assault on the notion of the public, the notion of the state as being um, a, a public regarding uh, institution, uh, the, the notion that um, actually we have every reason and right to look to the, the state to actually operate in ways that enhance our well-being uh, rather than to um, uh, pull itself back, enhancing uh, all of the uh, capacity of, of corporations and uh, others in power to force upon us conditions that are slave-like conditions. Um, so th this lack of the public, the lack of a of a notion of the public in many ways to me feels like um, uh, uh, sort of, I, I guess, uh, white flight when when the state has finally been made to uh, attend to the fact that there are more people here than than white folk. There are more people here than propertyed white men. When it finally has been brought around to the very limited extent that it did to account for the fact that we are a multiracial uh, country uh, made up of uh, people who were here when the country decided it wanted to come here, um, um, made up of people that the border you know, sort of crossed, made up of people who made it possible for the wealth of this country to actually exist, when those ideas are finally being infused in the notion of the public and what the government is for becomes the moment when there is a group that decides to abandon the notion of government altogether. So it's sort of like moving out of the cities uh, to the suburbs, now moving out of the notion of, uh, of, of, 
a state um, moving out of the notion of this American project with the idea that it should be defeated and its defeat, um, its in disabling is going to be a political win for them. What possibly makes that uh, make sense? White supremacy makes that make sense. Not understanding how the state can function to enhance public welfare um, makes that make sense. And consequently, not telling the stories um, of how the state has sometimes been mobilized to enhance the public actually contributes to uh, this destructive set of beliefs. So those are kind of the things that we want to take up and have taken up in Under the Black Light. And we'll, hopefully we'll continue to um, as long as the series has a political purpose. Thank you. Uh, we know that this is how you enjoy spending your birthday, but we are <laughs> going to let you go. I did want to say, though, I, I do believe that the starkness of um, the choices being made in the present moment has more people recognizing the deep unfairness of the assigned nature of societal harms and rewards, that it's disconnected from the value of the work that people do. I think people are appalled to hear politicians spelling out, you know, we think old people and poor people and homeless people should die, you know, and then to recognize they didn't make up that worldview in response to the pandemic. That's how that's, they're saying how they really think, you know, yes, um, right. You said to me the other night that you think that this could be a time for more than just treading water and trying to hold on, you know, to to what we have. It could be a generative moment. And I want to ask you how you make it that. And also with mm -hmm. regard to we have a question from Celtic. How do we make it that in the face of even if we get our coalition together, we got folks with guns who are allowed to run through the street. You know, how do we, you know, we, it's easier to say, like, we should take advantage of this moment. But what do we need to do? What are the pieces that need to be in play? Because we are obviously up against something extremely, extremely powerful. Yeah. You know, um, when I when I give talks in in. Uh you know, back back in the old days when we used to actually uh, come together and <laughs> be in auditoriums and talk about things, there's almost always that moment where I want to say, believe me, people, if if I had the blueprint for this, I, I would, you know, be churning it out now. You know, <laughs> I'd be like, here, everyone. Um, and, and so the, the upshot is, you know, I don't think any of us have, you know, a full picture. I think we all have a piece. Uh, and this, what makes me excited about this moment um, is that we recognize the need to come, you know, to the common feeding table with the pieces that we have um, and try to and try to develop, you know, sort of a nourishing, you know, meal that can sustain us through the, 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 the trouble we have ahead. Um, and I, I think we cannot underestimate, as you point out, I mean, um, the the arms in this country and who has them is is scary as hell. Um, that that's real. Um, the 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 role that our police play in um, 
you know, uh, politicizing and and protecting. So, you know, I look at those protests and I see the police just standing there doing nothing when people are um, effectively assaulting them, you know, verbally with guns. And I know that anything that involves that is a disaster you know, uh, for us, I look at the fact that the way that, um, you know, the uh, COVID restrictions are, are being enforced is going to be another opportunity for uh, people of color to be disproportionately punished, whereas, you know, white folks um, may not be. We saw that in New York City. Um, so I, I, I couldn't agree more that the situation is dire. Um, what I do have some confidence in is we're having conversations with people that we've never had before. We are having um, the the demand for deeper dives into how the hell did this happen uh, that we've never you know had before. Um, I think we're seeing the consequences of you know having an idiot in the White House that we have never seen before, and we're seeing the global dimensions of it. I mean, I think one thing is people are are now seeing that you know our problem is the globe's problem, uh, and it's being um, uh, it, it, we're we're seeing it replicated in in other places uh, uh, across the globe. So I think the desire and 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 the the realization that we need to think and 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 mobilize our way out of this is the first step uh, to um, uh, creating uh, opportunities uh, for us to feed our desire for for liberation. Um, I don't think we've been here in a very very long time. So you know that's a slender read. Uh, to to stand on, you know, uh, over this Grand Canyon, uh, the abyss is here. Uh, but we've got to get up every morning, and we got to tell ourselves what is it that we're reaching through this black hole to imagine on the other side. So I think the 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 work of imagining otherwise could not be more important. Um, one of our next uh, Black Lights is going to be that. We're going to talk to authors uh, like Arundhati Roy and, and, and others to help us develop the muscle that we need to apply our current critique into imagining another future. Um, I'll just end with this, um, and you know this, Janine, a lot of times when we do structural racism workshops and we've spent five days um, trying to get people to historicize what they take as just, you know, the natural outcomes, always the people who say, my grandfather came here with nothing and look at where we are now. Um, we, we take them through five days of every way in which this contemporary moment is built on the architecture of what has happened in the past. Um, but Ultimately, we get to the point where we have to say, we've got to narrate a different story. And so let's narrate the story from where we want to be. So let's choose 2050 or let's choose 2090 or 2100. Paint the picture of what our society looks like. And then let's start telling the story from this moment. So we have to have a narrative imaginary that gets us to there 
that starts here. So what happens with this group having been brought into a sort of common sense of this problem? What do you each go and do? How does that create an infrastructure that then allows broader, wider um, uh, uptake and activism? And how does that activism actually change the distribution of who has power, who has wealth? How does that distribution actually take us to the place we want to be? If we don't have that imaginary uh, process, if that's not a part of what we do um, in activist circles, I'm at a loss at how we do anything but just drive from one block to another. We have to have a destination in mind in order to figure out how to get there. Thank you so much, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, for your imagination, for your engagement, for your anger, and for your hope. Thank, Thank you very you. much and happy birthday. Thanks, Janine. <laughs> so before I close, I just wanted to remind everyone about, again, two upcoming events. Kim Crenshaw will be hosting the seventh installment, as we've said, of the African-American Policy Forum's Under the Black Light series. That's tomorrow, Wednesday, May 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Mobilizing Whiteness to Reopen America is going to include Carol Anderson, Alex DeBronco, Joe Lowndes, Mab Sechrist, Dorian Warren, and Jason Wilson. And you can sign up for that, and I know you'll want to, at aapf.org. On May 19th, Haymarket will host Abolish ICE is Not Just a Slogan, Immigrant Justice in the Age of Coronavirus, with John Washington and Justin Akers Chacon, among other great events that they have upcoming. I'd like to thank Haymarket Books and the African-American Policy Forum for organizing this live stream. I'll say again before we close, if you are inspired and if you are in a position to make a contribution, no matter how small, we would ask you to please consider giving to Haymarket through Venmo or haymarketbooks.org or on the stream to African-American Policy Forum at aapf.org and to FAIR at FAIR.org. We are hardworking groups who put the resources right into the work. Thank you to everyone around the world who joined this call. Thanks for being part of the conversation and for being part of the way forward. We can do this. We got us. So we hope to see you soon at future Under the Blacklight and Haymarket Books live streams. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.